Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. Our guest today is Russell Dinkins, and Russell ran track at Princeton University, where he graduated in 2013, but since then has really become an activist for men's track and field and cross country throughout the country. And this is going to be a really interesting story coming from a few different universities uh, throughout the country and ending down uh, our way in Clemson, South Carolina. So, Russell, welcome to Going Deep. And could you tell us a little bit about yourself, Russell, and how you fell in love with track and field (laughs) or track? (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, Yeah, so uh, my story is uh, not that much different than a lot of other young people um, who have kind of uh, found their way into the sport track and field. Um, I started running track and field. Uh, Actually, the first season I ran was cross country um, when I was six years old. (laughs) Um, My mom wanted uh, me to get involved in something. And there was a local team doing a fundraiser uh, near one of the subway stops. Um, You know, not the sandwich shop, like literally, you know, train underneath the ground from Philly. (laughs) You know, so. uh, um, Did you grow up in Philly? Is that where this is? Yes. Yes. This is in Philadelphia. Yeah. I grew up in Philly. So, um, yeah. So we uh, got a flyer. Uh, My grandma got a flyer um, from the track team's fundraiser. She gave it to my mom and my mom was like, oh, wow, this looks great. And then my mom signed me up and then the rest is history, I I suppose. Um, So, yeah, so that is what kind of started me off with track and field. And I wasn't very good at first and I actually disliked it a lot. And I used to cry because I didn't want to go to practice because it was tough and it hurt and I had to run up hills. I mean, six years old having to run a mile and a half up a big hill, um, you know, that's that's a lot. Um, But um, but my mom, you know, um, you know, thankfully she, you know, said, listen, you don't quit. So, you know, you know, if you're going to do a season, finish the season. Then if you don't like it afterwards, then we can do something else. But you're going to finish the season. And by the end of the season, it was always, okay, well, there's indoor track. It's a little different. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll try that. Okay, now there's outdoor track. That's a little different. And then by the time I got through the outdoor season, it was just like, that's what I'm doing. You know, um, But uh, track and field was great. It, it booed me with a great deal of confidence, um, especially as I started to get better. Um, gave me self-worth. Um goal setting. Uh, it was really so many innumerable benefits that it gave me. But one of the biggest things that it gave me was the perspective that achieving something, particularly with regard to education, was possible. So my track and field coach, uh, the late, great Bob Jackson, um, he told, he uh, drilled in us, and I remember this from a very young age, being a part of his program, that his track and field program was a way, a pathway to get to college. And so he said, listen, I don't know, I don't, I don't care what you do after getting to college. You don't have to run a, a step 
Uh, you can pursue other things when you get to college, but I want you to use this as a tool. So whether you get recruited or whether you use this as something that you could just use in your application, college is the end goal. So I remember, you know, being a, you know, a young kid knowing that college was not only a possibility, but was what was expected. Um, and being a black kid from working class neighborhood in Philadelphia, um, that isn't necessarily kind of the expectation that, um, that most other people, you know, would have, especially for um, young black men. Um, but this is the expectation that our coach had and he, was very successful. I mean, I would see kids um, come through the program and go to college every year. And so, you know, it was something that um, instilled in me a great sense of purpose. Um, not only was I running to get better, but I was also running to give myself, to afford myself an opportunity, whether that be through a scholarship, whether that be through recruitment, or whether that be through just adding it to um, my application to make me a full, a full, a full applicant. Um, for me, I did end up getting recruited um, and then I ended up going to Princeton University, um, where I where I graduated in 2013. You know, and since then I've been involved in a lot of things regarding education. Um, I also have run post-collegiately uh, for the New York Athletic Club a bit, um, so that's been kind of fun. Um, but when I was doing at Princeton University after I graduated, I was working with first-generation and low-income students. I actually created two positions for myself to help support the university better support those uh, populations. And then I was also volunteer assistant coaching. So we'll get into the activism that I'm involved with now, but those experiences coming from a modest background, having track and field afford a really clear opportunity and pathway for myself, uh, working in student service uh, after I graduated um, in order to better support under-resourced populations and being a volunteer assistant coach, all those experiences informed my perspective and allowed me to be uniquely positioned to advocate on behalf of track and field um, athletes and programs now that there's been a rash of cuts um, mm. due in part to COVID, but also due in part to institutional priorities that don't necessarily value the opportunities that are afforded via this sport. so much for for talking about all the different ways that running kind of was generative in your life in terms of how you framed your sense of possibility but also your sense of self I'm as a runner myself I started running in sixth grade I was a little bit late compared to you but <laughs> but ran cross country and track all through college and I think it is a, a special sport in its ability to not only, it's not just about whether you run in college or whatever, but it is how it shapes you as a person. And, um, and it sounds like you had a great coach too. So um, I love that, that story. Can you, I'm just curious, you know, tell us what events you ran in track in college. Yes, yeah, so I was a, um, I would say four eight, but really eight hundred, four hundred. So mm -hmm. I'll flip that. I was an hundred meter specialist who would um, drop down and you know cause Score a little some bit points trouble for your team. Cause yeah. a little bit of trouble in the four hundred <laughs> if I needed to as well. Yeah. So yeah. I was pretty. I was pretty solid. Um, I won five individual Ivy League titles. Um, great. Which, which was great. And then I actually ended up 
being a part of a relay, the distance medley relay. For those who don't know, yeah. uh, each leg runs a different um, uh, event or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. distance. Yeah. Distance. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, we ended up winning the NCAA national title, uh, my senior awesome. year in that relay. So were you the 800 leg? In I that? was the 800. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I could have won the 400 too, but you know, I, I wanted, <laughs> but, I wanted, I wanted the 800 meter leg. So I'm glad that they put me in the 800. <laughs> yeah. I was a distance medley person too. That, that was the longest standing record I had at my college was the distance medley team I was on so I'm like that <laughs> I hold that close to my heart that's a special group when you get four together that can do that that's awesome Russell I've I was a for the last quarter century was a fo- professional football coach in the NFL and in division one college and Marcia is actually NCAA Woman of the Year a long time ago. A long time <laughs> ago. Country it was a long time wow. ago. <laughs> but but she she coaches uh, our local high schools uh, women's cross country team and the middle distance runners and track as well. And one thing that I've realized that I never understood is what a team sport track and cross country still are in my mind coming from football basketball baseball has kind of been my background i've always thought of those as individualistic sports but marcia's and my daughter who runs for marcia has helped me really realize uh the team aspect of that which i think is a pretty good lead-in to our next segment so let's go back to may of 2020 we're here in the year of covid everybody's making cuts to everything there's not enough money anywhere and brown university another ivy league institution announced it's going to cut men's track and cross country in addition to some other varsity sports such as fencing golf and, and skiing and brown at the same time as everybody else in the country was was making these lofty claims about how committed they are to diversity. But Brown said, and and quote, uh, their stated goal was to, quote, improve competitiveness and align with their mission to increase diversity on teams, end quote. And Brown's decision was they wanted to, they talked about complying with Title IX. Well, at about a week or so after this announcement came out from Brown, there were Brown alumni, of course, members of the track team that were up in arms. But, Russell, you wrote an op-ed in, uh, on Medium.com that went absolutely viral. And uh, it is up on our website here for listeners. Please go back and read it. But you were really the impetus between the president of Brown, Christina Paxson, really coming out and saying, thank you for helping us understand we've made a mistake. And Brown reinstated track. Yeah. So uh, this was kind of interesting. So, you know, it was the year of our Lord, 2020. And um, and COVID, um, you know, was uh, affecting everything. Um 
And so I had just recently had been laid off um, due to COVID. Um, and so I just had a lot more time on my hands. And so, so that a lot of time on my hands, I started exploring writing. It's something that I had wanted to do for uh, quite a while, but I was a bit nervous and apprehensive about sharing my writing. Writing is a very vulnerable thing um, and mm. you can feel very naked. And um, I was really, um, I wasn't really confident in my writing, um, but I wanted to kind of challenge myself anyway. So I started writing. I just was writing different things on Medium um, about different things that are happening in the world, um, COVID, political matters, just things that I kind of wanted to speak on. Um, and I didn't have much of a following. Um, I would get a couple hundred views and I was pretty happy about that. Most of my family and friends were reading my pieces. Um, so when the Brown situation happened, um, I was really upset. I remember calling my friend at Brown, uh, who went to Brown rather, um, who I ran against, and asked him about what was going on and I asked him to put me in touch with the organizers. Got in touch with the organizers and, was, and then I remember saying, hey, um, I think you guys need to have someone write an op-ed that talks about this, that, and the third. Um, that talks about the fact that track and field is a diverse sport, that talks about the fact that it is a, uh, a sport that is cheaper than the other sports. I mean, you need to have someone talk about this. And they're like, yeah, no, this is exactly what we want to do. We're kind of trying to engage with traditional publications to see if they'll write something uh, and cover the story. Um, so I remember after I got the phone with them, I just decided to write something myself, not necessarily with the expectation that it was going to go viral, because again, all of my writing at that point had only garnered a couple hundred views. I was thinking I could write something, um, get my thoughts down, and then um, have Brown be able to promote that piece so that um, they could try to get a national outlet to cover the story. So let use kind of something that I wrote so that they can cover the story. Um, but not necessarily thinking that the piece itself will go viral. And then like taking it a step back again, um, somewhere in that sequence, um, I remember going to Brown's website because I wanted to see, okay, what was the reason? And I remember reading the press release and remember reading that they said that they were doing it to increase competitiveness. Um, because Brown has a large athletic department. They wanted to curtail their offerings. And also that they wanted to enhance their diversity efforts, as you just mentioned. Um, and that by doing so, they were going to be um, enhancing their diversity offerings across all their sporting offerings. And so the plan was for them to, uh, to move track and field down from varsity to club. And so by moving track and field down to club status, that would diversify their club offerings. Someone who doesn't necessarily know how college athletics work would think, okay, that sounds like a fine, reasonable standard. Uh, club teams are not the same as varsity teams. Varsity teams get recruitment slots. Club teams do not. Um, varsity team gets funding from the athletic department. Uh, club teams do not. Um, and the most egregious thing to me was that they were planning to elevate sailing from club to varsity, which, is, which in effect would be replacing their track and field team with their, with their uh, sailing team. Um, and so after seeing all this, I wrote the article on Medium, posted it, 
spent one day um, doing all the research and putting the arguments together, um, posted it around 11 something at night, went to bed, woke up the next morning and it had about a two, it had about 2000 views. And then it was going up about a thousand views per hour. And, um, and at that point I realized, oh, wow, this might be something special. Um, maybe I need to switch my strategy. And I spent a week um, kind of, instead of trying to show the piece to publication so that they would write a story on the issue, I just started trying to get the article itself in front of as many eyes as possible. So uh, trying to get prominent people to retweet it. Um, I was able to get it on letsrun.com, um, which is one of the largest track and field websites in the world. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, who is a you know, a world famous uh, author, he ended up uh, retweeting it. Uh, Deborah Messing, who is an actor on Will and Grace, she ended up retweeting it. it. Ended up getting a lot of traction. And a week after I wrote the piece and posted it, um, Brown announced that they were reversing the, their decision. Now, just to go into why track and field has a unique position and why I was advocating on behalf of it, um, for those who will go and read the article, um, you'll see that I talked about the fact that track and field had more, at Brown, had more Black athletes on it than baseball, crew, lacrosse, and their ice hockey teams combined. Um, and all those other teams were not, going to, were not getting cut. Track and field, if you look nationally, is one of the most diverse sports um, in college. And one of the few sports that actually has large Black student participation. Most sports in college are very homogenous and, and are also very white. And a lot of sports in college also are niche sports that are really expensive to participate in in high school. Track and field is actually the largest sport um, in high school where you account for male and female participation. And it is the cheapest sport um, by far in high school uh, at, the, at the secondary education level. And so you have the cheapest sport, you have the sport that has the broadest opportunity because uh, it has the most participants. And then you also have a sport that has the greatest, uh, you know, uh, one of the greatest uh, opportunities for diversity. And so on all those factors, uh, it didn't necessarily make any sense that they were cutting the track and field team, particularly because they were moving down track and field um, to club status and effectively replacing it with sailing, another sport that is extremely homogenous and also very affluent. And so that's a sport that has a barrier to entry. And the thing that people don't necessarily think about, each of these sports has built in pathways to admission via their recruitment slots. And so if you have sailing, those recruitment slots are almost guaranteed to be filled with people who are from affluent backgrounds and people who are white. That's just what it is. My argument wasn't necessarily that those opportunities um, need to be in competition with track and field, just that track and field, the only sport, one of the only sports that actually affords opportunity to people who are outside of those demographic groups, that opportunity shouldn't be taken away. You're listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Going Deep on BPR. Our guest today is Russell Dinkins, an advocate for men's track and field sports throughout the country. Thank you for saying yes to the writing 
spirit calling you <laughs> to put your writing out there. Writing is a powerful tool for social change. Um, but I think one of the, the things that your article held together was connecting this issue, which is there's something ridiculous about it. Like when you unpack it the way you did, you know, but you connected it to this larger social reality and narrative that that was reverberating in in a larger culture than maybe it maybe it ever had in a way you know just the way white institutions work the way white supremacy looks like smells like tastes like in in institutional life and it's just such a vivid example that I think it was like there it is right there this is what we've been talking about there it is and there's been a lot of research, even not in um, Ivy League schools, around how um, revenue sports, i.e. football and basketball, which are the majority of those athletes are young men of color, um, that those sports are funding these Olympic slash niche sports, which are mostly from families who are very resourced and they could pay for their kids to go to college. And there, that there is this, um, you know, and racial equity Institute calls it white affirmative action that is just always happening in institutions. And that, that, and you kind of caught it right there as it was right happening that gave it, it gave it this larger narrative that, even somebody that's not an athlete or even somebody that doesn't know a track from a sailing boat or whatever, they could resonate with this issue is important. This is something I need to pay attention to. So I just want to just say you're, you know, that the way you crafted it, put it into a larger template that's really important um, in terms of the way we look at sports they're, they're cultural iconography. They tell us how our culture works, and that's what your article did. So I thought it was excellent. You know, the Aspen Institute studies youth sports, and I think they did a study of like 21 different youth sports. And hockey, I think, was the most expensive at nearly 25 or over $2,500 a year that it cost to play hockey. I don't think they did sailing. I can't imagine how much it must cost to get into sailing. But track was the least expensive. There was an obliviousness that I had as well that like when you laid it out in the medium.com, I kind of felt like Miss Paxson, the president of Brown University felt. I, I give her credit for saying we now more fully appreciate the consequences of eliminating men's track field and cross country for black students in our community and among our extended black community. She went on to note that uh, these sports have been a point of entry to higher education for academically talented students who otherwise would not have had the opportunity many of them students of color. And so many people look the other way or pretend that it's not happening. There was something to me 
that was gratifying that here, Dr. Paxson, the president of Brown says, you know what? We made a mistake. And as we look at this again now, I, I thank you for helping us see it more clearly. Sometimes I, in, in college sports, Marsha and I have gotten in fights with lots of ADs and presidents, but it would just just admit the mistake. Just admit what's going on. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Actually, people will even forgive you. We'll, we'll get on with it. Um, and so I admire her for that. Could we, is there anything else that you want to say about that? Because I'd like to move on to the University of Minnesota. And then before we get to the meat of the matter in Clemson as well, if that's okay with everyone. I mean, I will say, and here we're going to get into this uh, with the other schools, uh, contrition, particularly uh, from uh, athletic uh, heads and uh, university presidents is a rare, uh, rare. <laughs> is a rare quantity or a rare quality, rather. And so um, the fact that uh, they were contrite um, is something that I do uh, want to give them acknowledgement for. Um, uh, the timing also was such that it was – so the, Brown made their decision and made their announcement. And then a couple of days later, the George Floyd murder occurred. Um, and, and so there was no kind of escaping sure. um, these kind of conversations in a way that I feel like the other schools had a little bit, um, they had the benefit of just a little bit of time between uh, what happened over the summer and when they made their announcements. And so the timing was just really inopportune. Also, Brown, they use a consulting firm. I don't know which firm they used, um, but they used a consultant in order to evaluate Title IX and to help them make the decision of which teams they were going to cut. And so my question has been, and it has been answered because I haven't engaged with any of the Brown trustees or their administration. You know, I'm sure you know they probably didn't. Love, uh, you know, the article that I wrote, but, uh, you know, that's okay. Um, <laughs> um, the result is what's most important to me. My question still is how, you know, even though they did correct it, and, it's, and I'm thankful that they did correct it, I just don't understand how a decision like that could be made in the first place when the, mm -hmm. you can just take a look on the rosters right. uh, sure. that are online and then see that there is a salient difference between some teams and the other teams. And the fact that, um, there was a consulting firm who was paid probably way too much money um, to give yep. them these recommendations um, and that those recommendations were considered and then actioned around. And throughout all of those processes and all those steps, this issue didn't, if it did come up, it didn't come up enough to whereas it would change the decision, I think shows uh, a failing of some institutional right. decision-making. Um, so I do uh, want to acknowledge that they did correct themselves, and I do appreciate that. Um, I hope that they are having internal dialogue about how they can prevent situations like that from happening in the first place in the future. what it is. I mean, it's institutional hypocrisy, right? Because at the same time that they were 
saying black lives matter and we are against racism and all that you're this is part of your point in your article they're doing this and white institutions and white people and i am a white person so i know how i, I know how white people work <laughs> there's always a way to kind of plead ignorance or you know oh i didn't re- i didn't mean to do that you know And I think part of the cultural moment we're in now is we're done with that. We're done with that excuse. It's not, not only does it not make sense, but saying that and being satisfied with that answer is again, a cover for re-entrenching white supremacy in our institutions of higher learning. So I guess what I'm saying is, I'm glad she said she made a mistake. I, I kind of wish she'd said a little bit more like the fact that we didn't get this or see this or that we that it that we knew it and still did it anyway. That's what we're going to look at as an institution, right. because that's how white ways continue to lead us around here at this university. And you don't hear a whole lot of people saying that, you know, I think it's gotten easier to say, sorry, we messed up you're still not hearing a whole lot of institutions say, look, we realize we were created by white people. We function to benefit white people. And in order for that to change, this institution is going to have to be like, we're going to have to go down into the roots of who we are. And you don't hear a whole lot of institutions saying that, you know, so Russell's being generous. Marsh is not going to be. well minnesota at the university of minnesota outdoor men's track was about to be cut was about to be cut in the fall of 2020 and you wrote in an op-ed that was in minneapolis's star tribune you wrote since black athletes were overrepresented in revenue generating sports like football and basketball there was a moral imperative for the university of minnesota to continue to support the one black sport that wasn't making money for the school and so they kept outdoor track but they eliminated still indoor track which as a coach is going to be awfully costly to recruiting especially in minnesota yeah especially especially. in minnesota yeah Yeah, it's it's cold until may you know may 15th you know yeah you can't do it'd be one thing if you did that in alabama or something but not minnesota exactly But, but track and field at minnesota there's 52 students across really as you helped us understand three seasons of cross country indoor track and outdoor track and of those 52 students, it cost about $6,000 per athlete compared to Minnesota baseball that had 35 students that cost $130,000 per athlete. I mean, financially, this doesn't make sense to cut indoor track. It seems to me like Minnesota kind of took a check swing and now hopes that they're off the hook a little bit. Yeah. So what happened with Minnesota? Um, and I really wish, um, you know, uh, 
really uh really wish that uh, more people kind of saw what they did so um i wrote that op-ed um and, and it got published on october 7th october 9th the board of trustees were meeting to determine whether or not they were going to reinstate the teams that they had cut so they had cut the men's uh, indoor and outdoor track and field program that was slated to end at the end of this academic year. Um, right before the meeting to determine the fate of the sports, the AD emailed all the trustees a new proposal at 9 a.m. that instead of eliminating the entire track and field program, we just eliminate the indoor team. And uh, the trustees voted on that new proposal at 2 p.m. Um, so they had five hours to evaluate this new proposal that radically changed, you know, what they were trying to consider. And that was done, you know, it was a backhanded backroom uh, maneuver to try to rustle away one of the trustees to vote on behalf of, you know, eliminating the teams. Um, the thing uh, that was clear, though, is that the article did uh, make an impact. Um, I watched, and, this, and uh, the, uh, the video of that meeting is still... Uh, online uh, as a public, uh, publicly accessible meeting. Um, there was a lot of mention of the racial impact that cutting the track and field team would have. Um, Minnesota situation, by cutting the track and field team and two other teams that were gonna be cutting as well, they would be eliminating 85% of their non-revenue producing black male athletes. Um, Minnesota's uh, teams, essentially all their black male athletes are in football, basketball, and then track. And so by eliminating the track and field team, um, they were going to be eliminating those opportunities um, and it was going to have a really clear racial impact. And unlike Brown, which isn't a revenue producing school, none of those sports produce revenue. Minnesota as a power five institution and also as Clemson as a power five institution, I mean, they do make money from their uh, football and basketball teams, a lot of money. And the thing that was really curious and still suspicious to me, and I don't necessarily know what it is, both at the University of Minnesota and at Clemson, when you look at the net deficit, baseball has a greater net deficit than track and field at both of those institutions. Curiously, both those institutions, when noting financial difficulties, only talked about the expenses of track and field, but they did not talk about uh, the revenues that are produced from track and field and then look at what the net was. And that's what's most important with the net is going to be. All of this data is publicly available. And when you look at the net, track and field doesn't lose the most money. Um, and you're also sponsoring athletes over three seasons of play as opposed to one season of play. The Minnesota said they were making the decision due to Title IX concerns and also due to um, due to uh, finances. The financial issue didn't necessarily make a lot of sense. Title IX, the Title IX issue that they were facing could have been addressed by modifying the rosters of all the sports by a few athletes. Um, so they could have reduced the male, the male track and field team by two or three athletes, uh, football by a handful, basketball by one or two, and that would have gotten them into the compliance that they needed to get into. Um, but it was clear that they wanted to try to eliminate track and field for an ulterior motive. Um, and so this half measure, I believe, was something that they wanted to try to do so that they can then maybe go back and, and, and finish off the job later. Uh, but I will say uh, Minnesota, they are committed to fighting to get the indoor team back because now that the outdoor team still remains, um, you know, the, the animal isn't dead. It's just a little wounded. Thank you.
You're listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Our guest today is Russell Dinkins, a former collegiate runner at Princeton University and an activist who's getting results in the pressure that he's helping to put on administrations trying to eliminate men's track and cross-country programs around the country. One of the things we've learned in, through the years in our world of life and sports, and we did it, we actually have done a show, several shows now with the sports economist, Andy Schwartz, and he walks us through this whole thing of expenses and all that stuff that's just bs i mean it's it's bs he's like you can't say you're broke after you bought six yachts that year you chose how to spend your money and so any of these power five institutions that have revenue producing football and basketball programs like minnesota they don't have an income problem they have a you're spending your money on stuff and you can't support this lifestyle problem, you know, like, and, and this, when we get into Clemson, that's the most extreme example of this, you know, and I know John's going to get into that, but you're right, Russell, that the argument of that, this is about the budget ledger is not true. It's not true. Athletic departments choose how to spend their money they also are getting money from their conferences. They're not broke. They're not broke. And so then you wonder, like you said, what is going on here? What is the reason why they would make this decision? And that is, again, I, I have my theories, but that is a, a more disturbing scenario to me, that kind of why these decisions get made that, again, the people who bear the brunt are black and brown students, black and brown male students at at the university. Right. And then another thing that needs to be uh, brought up is the fact that, okay, so at these Power Five institutions, they're making this money from their football basketball programs, which are uh, disproportionately, right. um, you know, have large uh, black, um, black participants um, that those revenues are spun up into coaches' compensation, yeah. spun up into buildings um, and to contractor fees um, spun up into bloated staffing. I mean, I think Clemson has a huge staff dedicated to analytics and things of that nature. Also that money goes to support the other non-revenues or Olympic sports um, that are overwhelmingly white. And so what you're saying is that, okay, we can make money from these black athletes, but we can't let the beneficiaries be the only black black athletes that we can't make money off of. Um, right. but the beneficiaries can be these other athletes in these niche sports. Um, uh, but then the other thing that needs to be talked about is track and field. Track and field only has 12.6 scholarships on the men's side. Um, and those scholarships are usually broken up. So people usually get partials. And then if you're from a low income background, you might be able to get some federal money. If you have good academics, you know, some academic money, but, um, a good amount of a men's track and field team is paying some money to the university, either in part or in full. Um, and so particularly for the people who are not from a lower income background and the white athletes who are on these track and field teams are the people who are from, um, who are from a, a better resourced um, kind of situations. They are revenue generators for a university. But 
those revenues, tuition dollars are not factored in to athletic accounting, athletic budget accounting. Um, And so even though track and field has a large team that has a lot of in, uh, not income, a lot of uh, tuition paying um, either in part or in full athletes, the ones who aren't on scholarships, that's not factored in because that's because that's right. athletic budgets are kept separate from tuition dollars. And there's and so, a reason for that. Well, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to be able to, to sure yeah. dig into uh, Clemson here as well. And I think, you know, you both hit the nail on the head. I mean, the head football coach at Clemson, I think, has a 10-year, $95 million contract. Both coordinators on the football staff make over $2 million a year, and they pay over $16 million a year uh, just for their football staff, separate of the head coach. And so in November of 2020, the athletic director at Clemson, a man named Dan Radakovich, came out and said, I quote, only men's track and field and cross country could provide the department with both substantial cost savings as well as the ability for long term Title IX compliance. Now, Clemson right now is facing the prospect of three different lawsuits. The men's track team has a a Title IX suit percolating. The women's track team has a Title IX uh, suit percolating. And Russell, you have a Title VI lawsuit with the Department of Education. So could you walk us through kind of those three prongs that are happening at Clemson. And I would encourage our visitors or listeners as well. There's a video that was made by the Save the Track and Field group at at Clemson, which is really compelling. As it says, I think the first sentence of the video is Clemson University has a history of exploiting black labor for profit. And this video goes on to show how Clemson and other schools throughout our country as well continue to do that. Could you start first with your Title VI lawsuit in the Department of Education? Because there's some nuance in this that's really, I think, interesting and important. Yeah, no, th- thanks for that. Um, yeah, and uh, the video idea, that was, uh, I was really glad that I was able to um help produce that and and write the uh write the script for it because uh yeah i felt like uh for clemson we needed to do something a little different uh and so instead of writing an article i thought um switching the medium and doing something visual would probably be really really good so I'm, I'm it was glad powerful that. <laughs> Power. glad, glad that uh and that was the first time i ever produced anything um, um like that I, I found the animator in la and you know kind of made it happen. So I'm really, really, really proud of that, uh, that work. I submitted a complaint, uh, a Title VI complaint to the Department of Education, which is still being evaluated. That complaint says that Clemson University, by cutting their men's track and field team, is in violation of Title VI, which Title VI stipulates that you cannot discriminate on the basis of race um, or national origin. Um, Clemson, by cutting their track and field team, they were cutting 
two thirds of their non-revenue producing black male athletes and cutting 3% of their black male uh, population on campus overall, which is pretty significant given that there's only 600 black male <laughs> on that black males on, the, on that campus. Um, South Carolina is about 27% black. And so they are already underserving um, you know, their population. And Clemson is a land grant institution. Um, it, is a, it is a public school, um, even though it kind of looks and kind of um, it feels like a private institution. It is a public institution. And so they do have an obligation to, to providing this educational service um, to, their, to their population um, that they serve. And they're not necessarily doing it um, in, this, in the way that they should. There is just a lot of things that uh, Clemson has done. Now, in looking at the numbers, um, when they talked about financial uh, issues with regard to the track and field program, uh, the track and field program, they said cost $2.2 million per year. That is looking at just the expenses. When you actually look at the net, when you take into consideration the revenues, it's a little bit under a million dollars net deficit. Um, baseball and soccer have greater net deficits than their men's um, track and field and cross country program. And you also have to take into account that track and field and cross country count as three different sports for NCAA sports counting purposes, but those three sports are collapsed into one budgetary line item for uh, schools, uh, athletic department budget purposes. So they are collapsing three sports that supports 50 athletes over three different seasons, which accounts for almost 100 uh, athlete opportunities. And they're comparing that to other sports that only have to field one season of play. Even if, but even when you collapse all of their, uh, all those, all the funds uh, or all the expenses together, it still has a net deficit that is less than the net deficit of their baseball team, which coincidentally is almost exclusively white and their, uh, their soccer team, which does have a little bit of diversity, but still is majority, um, uh, heavy majority white. The track and field program is actually majority black, just a slight majority um, black. It's the second, has the second uh, highest uh, black student uh, population in terms of all sport, only behind football. the university has engaged in a bunch of a bunch of ways in which they have tried to silence or retaliate against uh, different people for speaking up or or voicing support of this issue. I can't go into all of those details because the uh, the the case is still being evaluated by the Department of Education. But if the Department of Education does elect to open up an investigation, that would mean that Clemson University would be under federal investigation for violating. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so, um, you know, they really stand the opportunity to be in in a significant um, degree of trouble, you know, if they, if the Department of Education does elect to open up the investigation. In addition to that, um, there are two Title IX suits that are 
um, that have been uh, put forth by on behalf of the men and on behalf of the women athletes. The, the Title IX suit, basically uh, on the men's side, noting that uh, that Clemson is actually within Title IX compliance based off of the publicly available data, and that by cutting the men's team, they're going to be out of compliance favoring the women. So they'll so have for two- our, for our listeners, Title IX has to do with the gender equity. Clemson is roughly fifty fifty in terms of men and women. And so their sports should roughly be 50-50 in terms of men and women. I'm sorry, I just wanted to make sure our listeners understood Title IX. Please Totally continue, fine. Russell. Yeah, th- thank you for that clarification. Sometimes I forget to give the, uh, discl- give the background. Um, so yeah, so Clemson right now, they have about 50-50 at their overall male and female population. And their sports offerings are about 50-50 as well when you look at male and female uh, participation. By cutting the men's team, they're actually going to be out of compliance um, by cutting too many men's opportunities, about eight points, um, eight percentage points in arrears or in deficit uh, on behalf of the men. Um, and so you can't make a decision to cut a team to get out of compliance. Um, and then you also can't look at the future projections of what the female uh, student uh, population will be and make a preemptive cut in order to account for what you think the female enrollment might be seven years from now, um, and which is what Dan seems to be arguing, and Dan Radakovich, the AD. Also, on behalf of the women, Clemson right now isn't supporting women at the level that they need to um, in terms of financial aid or in terms of treatment. And so what the women are saying is, hey, by cutting the men's team, you're going to be hurting us. And also, we're not getting what we're supposed to be getting in terms of financial aid dollars, or sorry, scholarship dollars or recruitment dollars. That's supposed to be somewhat equivalent, and it's nowhere near equivalent. And so what's unique about this, um, if successful, this will be the first time that Title IX would be approached from both sides with both genders pursuing Title IX, not only in support of themselves, but also in support of each other. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, unfortunately, Title IX, Title IX, the spirit of Title IX is supposed to expand opportunity. Unfortunately, a lot of athletic departments have used Title IX as an excuse to take away opportunity for male athletes instead of expanding opportunities for female athletes. So what ends up happening is that you end up pitting non-revenue male athletes against non-revenue female athletes. And what typically ends up happening, since track and field is often one of the targets of Title IX compliance for universities, you have this sport that has a large Black student population being pitted against women's sport and the large roster female sports tend to be the ones that are very white, very affluent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have, you're pitting wealthier white women's opportunities against opportunities that service people who come from lower income backgrounds and also opportunities that are able to be accessed by um, black athletes or people of color. And that's not what Town Nine is supposed to do. It's not supposed to pit these uh, two uh, historically underserved communities against each other. It's supposed to provide expanded opportunity. And so what these young women and young, young women and young men are doing are asking the university to get into Title IX compliance in a way that expands opportunity and does not disadvantage either of them. And what's really significant about the women's action, not only do you have women's cross country and track and field, you also have uh, representation from the rowing team, the women's rowing team as well. Um, so this would be a really huge kind of uh, 
development, you know, if this were able to be successful, really subverting how uh, universities have applied Title IX in order to drive a wedge between sure. these teams. This would be uh, the students taking Title IX uh, compliance into their own hands and asking universities, the university to apply Title IX in a way in which it was intended, which would be to expand opportunity, not to take it away and not to pit them against each other. The other point that is really important to note is that, um, as we talked about before, how the men's football and basketball players are the ones who are generating a lot of revenue. Um, when you have the large roster female sports, they're getting the revenue. <laughs> um, they're being supported in large part by these black athletes who are in these revenue producing sports. When you're pitting these female sports against track and field, <laughs> you're pitting these black athletes um, against the beneficiaries of, <laughs> of yeah. the black dollars that are generated from football and basketball. And that shouldn't be the case. Um, uh, you know, what these women and men are doing uh, at Clemson is remarkable and I can't give any more detail about uh, it. Also, I'm not a plaintiff, so I don't know all the inner working right. of what's happening, but um, I do feel um, that they have a really strong case, and I am um, really encouraged that Clemson will um, will be kind of a that they will come around and come to the table and make a decision that will elevate and respect everyone's um, everyone's compliance needs. I know that the the athletes are, are organizing, and they've um, you know they're working together. I'm wondering, um, do you feel like they've got some support? there at Clemson on the faculty or staff, or do you feel like the athletes are sort of like on their own there in terms of their, their advocacy? Yeah. So they have a great network of support from parents and alumni in terms of on-campus support. It seems as though there is a lot of fear and worry about uh, kind of saying something that will go against what the university has done. Um, there has been a few professors that have uh, vocally supported the efforts by the students, and there's one who wrote um, a pretty nice article um, about how it didn't make any sense. Yeah, but beyond that, um, there hasn't been a lot of vocal support. We've heard that there's a lot of quiet support. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, it seems as though um, there is a culture of intimidation that has been kind yeah. of created there, um, which is really unfortunate, but not surprising when you have um, a large powerhouse like this. And, you know, I just have to say, it's really disappointing to see, um, you know, a university that literally spent, I forgot how much that locker room cost. Um, oh, we did a whole show on the locker room. <laughs> yeah. Each locker, just each locker was $10,000 a piece. Right, right. And then, the, <laughs> and as you know, the building has slides and has water oh, yeah. walls and there's- Nap rooms, barbershop. There, 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 there's yeah. mini golf yeah. and there's a laser tag. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Like mini golf and, and laser tag doesn't help you. And a slide from the top floor down to the bottom floor. Yeah. Like that doesn't help you sack somebody or, you know, you know, a rush or, you know, uh, you know, get an interception. I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand it. Are 
are there ways, as John said, we've got Clemson alumni listening right now. Are there ways people can get involved? Yeah, so if you go to Save Clemson Track um, Instagram and uh, Twitter, um, there should be a website uh, link, especially on our Instagram, that will take you to our website where you can sign up. And if, when you sign up, you get you get our emails and then you will learn about uh, the different meetings that we have. And so you can kind of get abreast of things uh, of that nature. Right. You can also follow me directly. Um, so you can follow me at Dancing Dink. So that's spelled out D-A-N-C-I-N-G-D-I-N-K-S. Um, yeah, so uh, thank you. And I also just want to give a quick shout. Um, I also helped William and Mary um, get their team yes. reinstated. And um, their issue was a little bit different. Um, you know, they were able to get their team reinstated, which was beautiful. been listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep. 